Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by ourselves, the Fried Egg Pro Shop. It's holiday season. We have a big selection of stuff. We've got apparel, hats, um, all kinds of t-shirts, hoodies, sweatshirts, uh, fried egg, shotgun start branded stuff, and then also a large print shop. So if you go over there, you're bound to find something that is uh, decent. You know, if you like the fried egg, support us by uh, checking out our pro shop. Uh, if you want to dress up your office or your your house or, you know, whatever your significant other will let you hang up in your house, uh, check out our print shop. We've got both paper, fine art paper prints uh, that you can frame or you can just get the print if you want to put your own frame on it. And also metal prints. Those are uh, stunning. They're vivid colors and uh, really pop. They're very unique. And if you're looking for something sleek, check out the metal prints. They are beautiful. I have a few in my basement. And if you order today, Monday or Sunday, this is the day of this recording, Monday, uh, November 30th, we do have a sale. It's 20% off. It'll automatically be accounted for at discount. You don't need any codes just or at checkout. So just go order what you want and you'll get 20% off everything. That includes prints, all apparel. It's a good deal. The website is proshop.thefriedegg.com. Dot com. That's where you can get to it. ProShop.TheFriedEgg.com. Today's episode is with golf course architect, golf course owner, Mike Young. Mike has been in the business for a long time. Mike uh, built his first golf course, The Fields, in LaGrange, Georgia. We talk extensively about that. That was built in the late 80s. He built it by himself. Uh, he was really... You know, one of the first design build guys, along with Tom Doak and Bill Core. So Mike's got a lot of experience, and after a years in architecture, he has bought and manages some golf courses. So we talk a lot about the golf management side. So without further ado, here is Mike Young. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. I'm interested to talk to you about how you got into golf design in the first place. You know, in general, you were you were a turf equipment sales rep, right? Yeah, but I, I did that on purpose. I did that with the intention of getting into golf design. But I was, uh, I'll go back to the start, and I, I was in Boy Scouts, uh, and I uh, and I had a, um, I didn't have one of the freaky scout masters, but I was in Boy Scouts, and uh, um, I had watched them build a golf course near me. And I said, I want to learn to design golf courses. I'm 16. So my senior year, um, my dad said, you can't get out until you become Eagle. So I had to do the Eagle Scout thing. So they take all the Eagle Scouts in the state and they put us up at the Hyatt Regency in Atlanta and they bring a mentor in for two days. And he uh, talks to you about what you want to do. And I said, well, I want to design golf courses. So they bring me this guy 
he's a big architect that John Portman, who did all a lot of the big buildings in Atlanta and all over the world. And he says, I don't know anything about that stuff, but there's a guy out here that's supposed to be good. That's building the athletic club and he's building a place down here on the side of the living. It's Robert Trent Jones, uh, junior, Robert Trent Jones, senior. And, um, his guy was a guy named Ron Kirby there. And, um, I went out there and I was picking up rocks and doing all this one day. And then they had me go out and meet Ron Kirby. And, uh, he, I was just a little kid. He says, well, said, if you're going to get into stuff, you got to go through the turf business or something like that. And I'm like, yeah, right. Whatever. So I went away, never thought about it much anymore of getting in it that way. And after school, I started thinking about it and I remembered what he'd said. So, I started researching and I found the Toro distributor and I said, Hey, you got to let me go to work. Uh, I want to call on golf courses where I can see everything and, and learn this business. And I do not. And he's like, well, nobody can be a golf architect. There's just not that many. And I said, well, that's what I want to do. And I don't want to work for one cause I don't want to be in an office. So I started taking pictures and going around seeing superintendents and calling on new construction uh, and I liked that I did it that way. That's like obviously a unique approach. I mean, most people go and work for an architect. What, what, you know, doing it that way, what advantages do you think you get, it gave you? Well, I, I, I'm not the first one to do it that way, but there were some, there's some others that have done that, but it, if you go work for an architect and you sit in the office and you're drawing or rendering or whatever, you've got his thoughts, his ideas, and you, you, you follow that family tree or something. But if you're calling on these guys, you can walk in every one of them's office, which I did. And you can see, you, you come to your own conclusions. And then, uh, because you didn't work for him whenever you, come out of the turf business and start your own thing it sort of pisses them off and they don't consider you qualified or whatever yeah that's it's interesting because i kind of think about it i got into golf from outside of golf and i came in without certain notions that get built in and if you work for an architect i, I imagine to a certain extent your thoughts and opinions and and ideas get shaped by that architect whether you know it or not yeah i think that you know, I had four or five years where every day I would see four or five golf courses and I would take slides and I've still got most of them. And, and you would see the old classics or the old courses, not all of them were classic. And then you would see some of the new stuff is being built. And you're like, man, I don't know that I'm into that or whatnot. And, uh, so you weren't shaped where if you were in that office, you were, you were sitting there learning things that are, that were modern golf. For, for instance, I just remember being at one architect's office and I was talking to him one day, just driving him crazy, you know, and on, on all your old courses, because people walked, you always walked into the front of the green. So you approach the green from the front, but with golf cars, you approach it from the side. And so they would design these golf courses to where they made sure 
there were no bunkers or anything, or they had an easy way to get into the walk onto the green from the side of the hole. And I'm like, they designed it around the cart path, but that's common when you, you start. Yeah. It's designed around the cart path. In other words, Hey, they're going to get out here. So let's don't put a bunker here. Cause we want to have plenty of room for them not to wear it out. And I'm like, that's not what all this is about. We're, and so naturally I was, if I, if I built one where you had bunkers or something there, then I didn't know what I was doing. That kind of, that kind of stuff. You know, when you're seeing five courses a day, you I assume you were mostly around the Southeast. Were there any courses that really stood out to you, um, old or new that, you know, from, you know, obviously the bunker story with the cart path, but were there ones that stood out to you and said, I like this. And then were there ones where you're like, I don't like this. Yeah. And distinct ones, you know, yeah, yeah, there were some of those, plenty of those. Any examples of the good ones? Well, you know, Palmetto club definitely stood out and people weren't really talking about it. Um, the Dick Wilson course that nobody talks about called Mountain Mountain View down at Callaway Gardens was really in good shape then. And it was a good golf course. It stood out. You could see that it was it was thoughtfully done. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Atlanta Country Club is one you don't ever hear about that was that I liked. Mm-hmm. What did did you you know? I don't know your early days, and this is obviously these travels are shaping the way you're thinking about golf. What were like the common things that you saw in courses that you liked? You know, what did did you were there threads about you know about the things that you saw? And I imagine, in many ways, those were rarer than the ones that you kind of looked at and said, ah, eh, you know, the golf course. Yeah, the the. I guess I had my eye for it whether, you know, you don't ever know if that's a good eye or not, unless people hire you to do another one. But, but I heard somebody once say that a lot of people want to find the golf course and then other people want to move the golf course there. And so like you sort of, my philosophy is, is to start with that stake and build out a lot of the signatures and all, because they're used to, marketing themselves to sell real estate and all that are given a piece of property and they start on the outside and build in. In other words, I got to put the hole here. So they start moving a lot of dirt and holes, holes get up in the air. And I probably, my biggest thing was trying to keep it down on the ground. And when I built my first one, 1988, 89, everything, I kept it down. We did, we, didn't do it. And so people are like, well, you can't do that. You got to get the greens up. You got to do this, all these technical aspects. And I wasn't worried about the technical as- aspects of it. Cause my ground was sloping. I knew I could drain the water. So, uh, I just, I just think you got to find the hole and then carve it out from there. I'm not into bringing dirt in to build a hole. Let's, let's talk about your first design, the fields. how did you get yeah. that opportunity? Well, I was in the turf business or the equipment business. So you'd go to the trade shows and I'd met guys. You had a, I was building a network and I knew a guy that was a seed salesman and he grew up in the pecan business and he was determined he wanted to build a golf course. And, um, I knew that 
people weren't going to let me build one. So I just, I said, look, uh, let me build this thing and I won't charge anything. We'll trade for a lot or something like that. And he said, okay. So I routed it, started going down there in the afternoons. We'd, um, we had a skid steer loader and we had a small dozer and we'd work on it and work on it and have guys move rocks during the day. It took two years. And then while I was building it, I got two other jobs. It's funny that, how that works. Yeah. And that's how it, and the, 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 uh, the first one, the first one I got this guy's name, his name was little boy. He had one of these El Camino trucks. Was he a little boy? No, not at all. <laughs> most, most people with the nickname little boys aren't little boys. No. <laughs> so little boy, little boy comes down to the course and he says, I hear you're building this golf course and so-and-so liked it or something. Says, uh, I want to build one. And it was up in Atlanta. It was, it was where Atlanta was developing up 400. He says, can you come look at my land? So I said, sure. He said, he said, when? I said, when do you want me to? He said, tomorrow. So I go up there the next day and I look at it. And I said, this just won't work. It's solid rock and it's straight up and down. He said, okay, hold on. Let me find some more. I'll call you back. Well, I start home. By the time I get home, he's called. He said, I got another piece. Can you come back tomorrow? I go back the next day and, uh, he says, uh, how's this? I said, this will work. We can do this. And so, uh, he had a big country music park on the lake in Atlanta that had a lot of big country music stars come there. And that was what they did was that and chicken processing. So, uh, he says, well, how much is this going to be? And I said, well, it'll be a couple of million dollars, uh, you know, to build what we were doing it. So he writes me a check for a million and a half. He said, here, and I'm like, whoa, 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 hold on. This isn't the way we do it. We got to, <laughs> we got to lay this thing out. We got to permit it. Um, he says, well, um, we don't want to do all that up here. You don't have to do that. And I'm like, yeah, we do. <laughs> so we start in that. And meanwhile, I go back two weeks later and I go up to the hill and there's a hundred golf cars there. I said, what in the hell have you done? He said, I'm digging a basement over there for the clubhouse and said, I went down to the athletic club, and bought all their used carts or something. They were turning in. So we'd have some carts. <laughs> that was my second one. And it was just a matter of, I mean, they were really good clients, but it was just keeping them under control. These guys, <laughs> they were rolling. <laughs> they, and then, it sounds like they were very impulsive, very impulsive, but we went from there. So it was, it was not the, uh, refined country club client. So with the fields, you, you get this job and you had never done any of this before. No. So the dozer gets delivered or is there. What, how, talk me through like the first few days when you're just getting on the dozer and doing this. Well, we and had a, we had a guy that could run a dozer and I'd start sort, sort of showing him what I want to do. And then I'd learn the dozer and this was an old dozer. And then I'd get on it and mess around some, and then the other guy would get on it and then we'd get it, <clears throat> you know, it's like taking a log and making it into lumber and finally sanding it down into furniture. So we probably took five times the amount of time a guy that knew what he was doing could do. And then we, we just kept doing everything. We, uh, 
built USGA greens. Um, and we, that was a process. We got a guy to help us with that. Once we learned how to do it, we did the rest of them ourselves, but the floating them out and everything took a while. We put in the irrigation uh, and one of the partners was a dentist and that, that guy would go out every afternoon, put the pipe in the ground. He had a ball doing that. And um, it was, I mean, it was done just, just that way. So this is before, and you know, for everybody, this project, you're, everybody gives, obviously, Tom, who is a regular here, good friend of yours, all the credit for being the first design build guy to come back, really, you know, with High Point and Corin Crenshaw, obviously, with Sand Hills. And, but this is before both of those, and it's just you and, and a couple guys out there building the golf course, huh? Yeah, and I think that those guys were, we were all about the same time. I think Tom and I really, the first good pieces of land and, and good ones I got, we've always done design build and it, it's, it's a delicate subject because for so long it, uh, it, it was like, well, you can't do this. It's not fair to the client. You know, you could, um, you could be screwing the client or whatever, and you can't be an architect if you're also building it. And, and I just didn't care. But it, but it, 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 some of the so-called professional architects considered it a uh, a no-no to build your own courses. And now looks like they're coming full circle. But I still have my theories that that's when Dick Wilson was doing his thing. That was he was not professional enough for some of them. That's when him and Jones started having their conflicts. Yeah, it, it, in. You know, for you, you had to be, you know, obviously you alluded to the fact that you took a non-traditional route into architecture, which probably, you know, rubbed some of the profession the wrong way. And then you get into architecture and you take a non-traditional route of constructing a golf course, which, you know, probably saved a lot of money for your clients. And, uh, you know, but it also, you know, you were, you were somebody doing something different, which always, you know, ruffles feathers, right? Yeah, I think so. I think it's, as you get older, you realize you might've ruffled them, but, uh, um, cause you were taking a job mm-hmm. that they, they would have otherwise gotten. And naturally they're going to tell them, you don't know what you're doing and you did this wrong or you did that wrong. And that used to just really piss me off. Now I'm like, well, I don't know that there is any wrong in this business, dude. Yeah. Yeah. So the fields, you know, it opens and, it uh, eventually, you know, lives the course of life, different owners, and it comes up for sale and, and you uh, you purchase it back. Talk about that whole experience. Now you're now you're not only a golf architect, but also a golf course owner. Yeah, we've owned uh, four different courses, mm-hmm. different times. And, my, you know, my son, when he got out of school, he came to work with me and probably knows as much as he's been building golf courses and designing with me for 20 years now. He's 42 years old. And Ashley, um, I said, Hey, let's put our office down here and you move down here. So the office is upstairs and he does everything from there. It's just a base. And he's learned the agronomics off of Google. I mean, he's, he's got a finance degree and, um, uh, 
he likes being outside. So he, he got on Google and we've, he, he does the superintendent work and then he's travels to the different sites wherever we're working on golf courses. I mean, he was in Costa Rica for two and a half years building that course. And, uh, he's been designing and building and, and might be a lot better than I am because he's, uh, uh, he's a little more laid back. <laughs> well, you know, it's not necessarily maybe better for certain things, you know, not yeah. always the, uh, it could be, could be better. You could be better for different situations, you know? That's right. That's, and that's, he, I think often that's what happens. He might not have been able to deal with little boy the way you deal, dealt with him. <laughs> I had little boy rolling. <laughs> little boy was, little boy was a big concrete pumper. That's what he did. He pumped concrete. He was a mess. What was that golf course called? It was called Country Land, and it's still there. It is? It, it's 6,000. It's right in the middle of all the growth in Atlanta. It's 6,000 yards long, and they cover it up. I mean, they play. I don't know how many rounds they play, but it's on Georgia 400, and it's just a little golf course that we just shaped out. And uh, the guy I had shaping with me there was a guy named Craig Metz, and Craig had been with Fazio. And Craig was an architecture nut and he got out of Houston and his father had been the head pro at Westchester and the head pro at Shady Oaks. And he traveled to tour with Hogan and he was like second in the master. His name was Dick Metz and you can look up Dick and Dick was, so Craig was a nut. All he did was take pictures on the weekends of golf courses and he's a really good shaper. And he, he would take the Hispanic dudes and at six 30, they'd do calisthenics. He'd have two that cook lunch every day. Uh, Craig just worked on that deal with me and he really did some good shaping and it's a 6,000 yard deal. That's just nobody hears about. And they, they cover it up with people playing it. And it's, it's right up and coming Georgia. You know? It's interesting. You talk about Craig Bass and how he was like a serial photo taker of golf courses you would go to all the different potential customers and customers and take photos and you know not a lot has changed because i go to golf courses and take a ton of photos but you know the mediums and the access the information has changed how was it watching kind of the internet and how golf architecture changed talk a little bit about that because obviously from you know your time when you started in the late eighties, uh, to now, you know, the spread of information is just completely different. Yeah. Uh, you know, that book outliers, you, you might've read mm -hmm. it. It's, I was born about the right time. So we're to where there was opportunity to do golf courses. Guys now don't have that opportunity. So when I'm selling, man, there's one or two golf courses a year coming along at the most. And then when I started building them, it just happens to hit. And when, when that was going on, there was a magazine called golf course news, which was a big magazine came out every, every month and everybody would put everything they were doing in there. You'd want to go in there and say, Hey, art Hills is building over here. Fazio's over here. You're over here. And photography got big. So the photographers would, would photograph these holes and they would photograph sort of from the air up on the ladder where you get these totally different views than you would on the ground. And it became a big promotional deal. And you're, you're sitting there where everybody's hyping this stuff and hyping it. 
and you're certainly in the back of your head. I think everybody in the business knew, man, this shit can't go on. This can't go on forever. You're just playing. It's, it's going to blow. And so, uh, you, you, I put an ad in a mag in one of those magazines one time that it said, we create dreams, not nightmares. And it was talking about, what a and, slogan. It, oh, and it, it, uh, it really ticked off a lot. <laughs> and, uh, um, but it got me some work and, um, I realized then that this, that the, you don't tell people where you're working because all you're doing, all these guys are advertising. And next thing you know, they're running around trying to get the developer or whatever a guy come in and say, I work for so-and-so developer, blah, 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 blah. Next thing you know, there's 10 guys calling that developer, you know, wanting to, wanting to see if they can get his next project. So you, you just don't, it's changed for so long. Everybody was hyping it and there was so much stuff. And when they started that one course a day thing, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, man, this is crazy. But um, I imagine you had that perspective a little bit too, coming from, you know, where you were kind of in the golf turf business, a different line of the business uh, where you're, you know, going to clubs and working with them and working around their needs. If you're selling something, you're starting to understand how a golf course works. And I imagine, you know, an architect at that time, they, the one course a day thing, they're just thinking this is the biggest swoon ever for your, for their business. And probably look at, you're looking at it through a different lens at that point. Yeah. I had, and, and, and uh, let's go there for a second. I, I, I'll tell you this. It's one of those businesses that you're like, this business shouldn't exist because it's, it, it cannot sustain itself. And when I say that, you, you go back and you think, um, and, and let me rephrase this. I think that if it wasn't for golf superintendents, none of us would be in business. And those, those are the, those guys, are the key. And I think the world of them, my father-in-law was a superintendent at, at some good clubs and I, I've got a great respect for those guys, but I don't know of any superintendents, um, curriculum that gives these guys that says, Hey, here's how you operate that golf course for profit. So often the guy comes out and the first thing he wants to do is go to work for a big club so that he can get some interviews at another club. And the first thing he asks is how much budget do I have? You take that budget, you do everything you can do with it. So you can go to the next club and get more budget and you work through about three or four clubs and it's great. It's, it's the way the industry is set up, but in, in the modern world, I don't, I don't know that most corporate corporations are set up to function that way. They want you to make a profit. And so I'm, I'm sitting there watching and I'm working for these companies and not to name any companies, but they'll go give a grant to uh, UGA turf school or Penn state turf school. Well, obviously, by the time that guy gets out of school, he's been using that equipment or that fertilizer or that irrigation. And you've been taught a certain way. And it's like, Hey, if I come in there and say, look, we're not going to put in a $2 million irrigation system because economically we can hire one guy to come around and do this, this, and this, and it'll be 20 years before you ever made up the difference. 
and and the young guys look at you like, well, you can't do it that way. And the biggest thing to me, and the thing that still stands out to me, was I remember, I remember working for Toro when John Deere was getting in the business, and at one of our seminars, uh, we we had this guy that would come, Ken Peters or something. He wrote a book called The One Minute Manager or something. He'd come and speak to us, and uh, it was the Toro seventy-two inch Groundsmaster was a rotary mower that superintendents use. And he said, you got to realize if John Deere sells one of their mowers that's 72 inches wide to every distributor, every dealer they have, they will have manufactured more mowers than Toro sells in a year. So we're like, wow. And then I was, I was calling on um, Augusta National every other Monday, I'd have to be there. And I'd go call on them and the mechanic, spend a lot of time with the mechanic. And Paul Latshaw was coming in as the superintendent. He was coming from Oakmont. He had taken one of our Toro um, greens mowers called a G3 and he'd welded two more reels on it and made a five gang greens mower he could mow fairways with. Well, in 1985, we mowed the masters with a Toro 11 blade transport frame that pulls behind a tractor. And uh, um, Latshaw's bringing this thing up to another level. Well, Toro and all the other companies, they love that because the transport frame, the gang mower, it would last you 20 years at a normal golf course. But if you could get a lightweight fairway unit in there, you got about five years out of it and you'd sell the cost of the machine in parts over that five years. So we were taught to, you know, don't be pushing these gang mowers. So now what I use in my fairways is gang mowers. That, yes. And I go to a young superintendent. He's like, I would never have one of those things on my golf course. And I'm like, okay, how much you want for it? He's like, oh, I'll take a thousand bucks. You go get a gang mower that you can't put, you buy them for a thousand dollars, put two or 3000 in them. The thing lasts you from, from now on where, we've taught people to spend more and more money and we've, we've uh, the guys that are in charge of these clubs and all now are their fathers. They didn't borrow money and spend money at these private clubs. Like, like we do today. I've got a picture from 1990, uh, either 97 or 98. I'll send it to you sometime. It's a full five gang Jacobson pull frame behind a Willis Jeep on the 16th hole at Cypress Point. Unbelievable. <laughs> and, and I took that picture. I mean, this is awesome. And that was, you know, that's 24 years ago. And these guys are still, still pulling this Jeep got a Jeep out there pulling this five gang. I'm like, yes. And, um, and, and you go to some of these, modern resort residential places and they'd have all this modern equipment these maintenance buildings it was so we've just we just let all that get out of hand i used to work in the restaurant uh industry i we still this i sold this like loyalty program as a startup but i remember talking to a experienced restaurateur and he said you know the biggest mistake that uh, all new restaurant owners uh make is they want they want the shiny new ovens 
They they want to go buy you know all these shiny new ovens and the first you know what happens immediately is you know they sink all this cost in. What I do is I go buy all used ovens from the people that uh, buy the new ovens and then go under. And it's it's interesting how you know you know from your experience. In a way, like what you do, especially at the fields, is you maintain a very good golf product for a very low cost to the consumer. And, you know, to do that, you have to get creative and take shortcuts and do things differently than the modern trend. Yeah. And, and we're all in it. I mean, what you're doing, you know, the golf magazines, they don't, they, y'all doing a much better job than the golf magazines. And then they, they don't know what to do about it. But it's, it's, the golf business, if you don't know how to, there's 800, I think one of the guys was saying not long ago, there's 800 courses in the United States that have a waiting list that are considered exclusive clubs that have a waiting list and can still uh, charge an initiation fee and can build projects on their reserves. Then you got another 2000 clubs that are private. 501c3 privates with a board and they might be struggling, but they're all wanting to do projects. They want to assess people to do projects. And the difference in those clubs is those top 800, the club is there for the member. And in these others, the member is there for the club because the club's gotten where they got to have that member. They got to, you know, you're there when you start seeing widescreen TVs over the urinals because the clubs that can do the widescreen TV urinal thing, they, they, they're right at the top. That's when these, and that's what that middle group that doesn't know any better. They're just doing all these things. And the new, new thing is we got to be a family club, got to be a family club. Well, if, if, if you don't have a set of dues to where a guy that doesn't play golf can't join, then you're not a family club because it, it, the golf is the number one thing. And if your dues are up where you are, what are they, 15 grand a year from clubs up there? Yeah, it depends, but yeah. In- well, let's just say if, if but down here, 700 bucks uh, a month. And if you, uh, if you don't play golf, you're not going to join for the swimming pool and the tennis, you're going to go to another place. And so we've, we've gotten into this, deal where everybody's selling everybody on the clubhouse and all that other stuff. And while all that's going going on, you got 12,000 golf courses out there that are either run by management company or individual owners. And those individual owners like me, they're not going to get into magazines. They're not going to run around to everybody and tell them how they do it. They just going to keep doing it and keep their mouth shut. And, and every state's got that and you can find it. And it's, it might not be as gloom and doom for them as some people make it out to be. Well, I think if anything, 2020's taught us that with clubs and club golf is that the golf has got to be your core product because all of the other stuff, if it goes away, you know, what at the end of the day, all you have is a golf course. And, you know, with, with obviously social distancing and, and what's happened, the popularity for golf and, you know, all these places are posting record rounds and I'm sure, I'm sure you've seen it on your end where more people are playing golf because it's a, a way to get away and safely, you know, get recreation and do something. And, and at the end of the day, I, I, I hope one of the long-term 
impacts of it is that these clubs have windfall from, you know, they lose all their weddings, but they get windfall from golf and the revenue generated by golf. And they think to themselves, wow, you know, this golf thing's the most important thing we have, but it probably won't go that way. I, I think it could, but I think what determines that's the square foot, the size of the clubhouse. Some of them, they don't know how to get rid of that clubhouse. Mm-hmm. You know, if you had, if, if your generation's going to end up saving golf, as far as I can see it coming, they don't really want to go join the big club. That's they don't want to be burdened with that. First, they're too mobile. There's no way to pay a big initiation fee here, stay three or four years, move to another town, do it again and do it three or four times. Not going to happen. They would rather be at a club with good greens, good tees, some architectural merit to it go on a golf trip to Bandon here or Sand Valley or wherever. And, and you can see that coming on and, and you can cater to that guy and, and create a pro a product that works and, and they're going to, they're going to use it. And I, and I think it's so good to watch these kids that, that are, that don't mind. You know what I mean by edges? Mm-hmm. When, when they don't mind the edges, if my cart pads are broken over here and uh, I don't have all my OB stakes up or I've, I've don't spend a fortune on my edges, but give them a good product with good greens, good tees, um, bunkers and let them go play golf. They understand it and they're fine with that. And you can give it to them at a price that lets you make money and lets them play. And that's where we're going. It's the expectations, the the set of expectations, what people value in a way that is changing. Yeah. It's like hippie girls that didn't wear makeup. You'd have real good-looking girls with no makeup on, just little hippie girls. Then you get these damn girls with all this makeup on, all this stuff, wanting to be a Stepford wife. And you 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 see that it's a your generation is more into hippie girl, hippie guff. Mm-hmm. It's where the edges are just, it's just natural. I mean, I'm a one height and the uh, then I've got, yeah. And then 30 yards in front of the greens, we really soup it up. We primo it. We go ultralight fairway mowers, chipping areas, everything are mowed that way. And that's where everybody plays. But in the, in the fairways, we're a little over a half inch with gang mowers and then it, it lets us do it. I mean, I could I could take it up another level or two, but I had to charge more. Mm-hmm. How how does that you know and relate like? Say you you want to make what you're doing around the greens all the all the way through the fairway. What you know in the end cost? How would that translate to the golfer? Like you know, I'm going away from gang mowers. I'm going to the lightweight mowers so that I can I can get this thing down a little bit more. Um, you know, on a green fee basis, are, are we talking a five, $10 increase to the retail golfer for all that? Probably, probably 10 to 15. And I, and I say that, let's think about that. I, I, we maintain with three people. Ashley does that. He, 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 as we have three people, one guy's been there 30 years and he's great. And, um, that's our crew. If, if I go to mowing fairways, I'm going to go to a lightweight fairway mower. I'm going to have to mow it more frequently. I'm going to have to sharpen it much more because the gang mowers 
we sharpen those once, maybe twice a year if we get some nicks. But other than that, you sharpen that real mower and then you come in for the winter, rebuild it and go again. Um, we're going to fertilize more. We're going to, um, we primo the entire course anyway. And primo is a growth retardant that tightens it up. And so we would end up getting that look and, and mowing wall to wall like that would take considerably more time and probably another two to three people on the crew. You know, Garrett Morrison just did a uh, pod for us, a story on, you know, the pursuit for green grass and, you know, kind of related around Augusta and, and he, he related it to people's lawns. And I think everybody can understand it from a lawn standpoint is, you know, you go out, you get the fertilizer, you know, you put all these inputs in and you start mowing it lower. All you're doing is you're, you just need to do more for the lawn because you're opening it up to so many more, you know, um, different diseases diseases yeah it, it, it becomes so much more susceptible and it, it is so different than especially a public golf course where you know you're you're an hour 15 south of of uh atlanta you're not in you know you're not in suburban atlanta where like you could just you know you can right. throw a stone to a hundred thousand golfers uh and you're 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 providing a you know affordable golf product for you know the masses but you to, in order to do that, you have to do things certain ways. And, mm -hmm. you know, and this is a, a perfect example of a way that nobody's, it doesn't provide any real difference. Like the, the amount of money that you have to essentially pass on to the consumer doesn't equal the increase in playing experience, right? I'd rather save 15 bucks and have fairways that's, uh, you know, a half inch rather than have it be, you know, like a, you know, a fringe, and pay $15 more in my personal opinion. But, you know, I, I, somebody else would say that's great. I want the fairway to be this way. I think, I think you're exactly right. I think that, and the other thing is I think so many people now, they equate that level to the quality of the course. They can't under, they can't distinguish or differentiate between maintenance and architectural strategy. So lots of times the higher your maintenance and the better your maintenance, they consider that a much better course design wise and everything. So you got to get past that. But the number one thing in my opinion, and you, we'd have to talk to a superintendent about this, but by the way, I, I listened to his podcast on the grass, on the green grass thing, but, and it was good. The, uh, the number one thing is high to cut. Mm -hmm. You think about it all the way through. If when I was growing up, bent grass was nowhere near the problem in the South it is now, but fast was eight and the grass was mowed at a quarter inch or more. So the grass didn't have near the disease issues or near pro near the problems that it had once you started cutting it an eighth of an inch hmm. or, or a hundred or whatever you want to call it. And so everything, when you start lowering heights, you get more disease, you get more issues. You got a different mowers, more expense, more people. And so high to cut has so much to do. And the number of cuts, if you've got a fairway cut and then you've got a, a short rough cut and then a rough cut and a T height and a cut around the greens, look how many mowers you got. Look how many people you got. We just mow everything just like, just like they do in Europe. If we can't, if to use that, 
with so you the field is doing really well you know and now you you've you're at the point where you're reinvesting money into the club like how are you thinking about re and putting money back into the golf course and the different projects that you're doing whether they're on the course or off the course well this is ashley's doing all that he he's on site with me doing projects but his his the fields is more like his thing is we're trying to create a a millennial type golf is what i call it and everything we haven't taken anything everything we've put back in there we haven't taken anything out and it's 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 a um a different environment the 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 restaurant's more like a pub with the fire pits and the what's the cornhole stuff y'all do and all that i call it bags i call bags yeah yeah, cornhole scares me but uh (laughs) but uh uh, the bags, the bocce ball or bocce ball or whatever. And, um, we've, we've doing music. We had 300 people at a concert the other night, um, where we had a really good band in from mobile and we're, um, focusing right now on specializing in barbecue. Got a smoker coming in, built a barbecue shed deal, uh, really focusing on the practice area and, and understanding that that we're not a country club, but we're going to be where the guy that wants to play golf and then wants to see his kids play softball or soccer or whatever later in the afternoon can come out, pay, come back the next day if he wants to, or walk away and we can still make it. We're not, we're not dependent on having a 500 person membership or something. And so it's, it's a, it's a totally different venue than a, club it's very simple inside um we're doing like a little dormitory upstairs trying to decide whether to do airstreams or do little cabins out in the woods where because we got guys that come down and you know they would stay there and and we can build those things fairly reasonable so it's it's just back to basics are are you surprised that it's become a place where people travel to to play from you know sometimes eight plus hours away yeah i I am i think sweetens cove helped us and everybody with that it they really did a good job on that social media and all that stuff and and i would i wasn't aware of how much that helped but i see these guys coming in and like one night i'm like well you know um what's that harvard bag dude it's like, well, I played golf at Harvard, and I'm like, well, so what are you doing down here? And, and uh, he's like, he's like, well, uh, we love it here. We come, and and then I've I've found that that guys that are good players that are playing in the mid am and the USM and all, one day I see this guy, and he's gone back about a hundred yards because I'm fairly open. He just crossed over a hole and teed up on a hole there, and says. Man, I come in here and play all the time to practice for my tournaments because it's firm and fast, and I can step back on these tees and make these holes however long I want. So I'm like, well, well, maybe we're onto something. Maybe it's me that has the issue of thinking I got to be nicer and nicer and nicer. Maybe these kids do understand because a lot of the guys my age don't understand that, and they don't, they don't want that. They, my age group. I grew up playing golf. 
I see too many guys that now that are my age, they don't care about really getting better at golf. It's more of a social thing where they can hang out, smoke some cigars, get their handicap where they can win this, that, and this. And um, they're not into it. The, the kids now actually walk and do things. And it, it's hard to get four guys my age that will walk. Mm-hmm. Even our golf trips, when we go on a golf trip, you got to get guys that will go walk. So the, y'all's generation is going to change it. Yeah, I think about my dad. He's, you know, he's golf nut, plays every chance he can. He's like a 15 handicap. He walks, but, you know, I'll send him to places. You know, they'll ask me when they're going somewhere where they should go play. I'll send him. You know, one time he went to some places in Wisconsin. I sent him and he goes, you know, I just struggle with those wide open places. I just, I I can't get out. He's like, I need more trees. And I'm like, what? (laughs) I, I, I'm like that. That's gonna help you. You're, you know, you're 14. You don't really know where the ball's going. Like having it wide open is only gonna make it more fun for you. But he almost struggles with the juxtaposition. I think that's, uh, yeah, that's the other, and they don't get it. It's just, just I've had guys. I was gonna take some guys down to Hoopy a few months ago, and when they found out they had to walk, it's like I'm nowhere, no way in hell am I going there. I'm like. Well, <laughs> little boy wouldn't be going to a hoopy. No, little boy, little boy didn't even play golf. <laughs> little boy, little boy didn't play golf. He'd come out there and ride around, and drink beers. But, but uh, when you got that El Camino and you got that thing waxed up, you don't play golf. You just ride. <laughs> but it was so I don't know. But it, it's it's changing. So you you've operated you had a different perspective coming into architecture because you were on the turf selling turf equipment side you get into architecture and then your journey gets you owning golf courses how did owning golf courses you know did that bring another level of of different of way of thinking of the architecture side which you still are building you know, redesigning golf courses. How did your views on architecture change when, once you got in the weeds of owning and operating golf courses? Uh, not much. You know, about the time that we were starting, like Tom was starting, and I knew who Tom was. He probably didn't know who I was, but I was regional. And, and, and my goal all along is I saw a niche there for public golf. And if you remember, you might not be old enough to remember, when I started, the signatures didn't touch it. They wouldn't go near it. There was never, it was all resort, residential. And then then when things started changing in that, you started seeing the Nicholas's and all go to the public. And they called it upscale daily fee or country club for a day. That was the, that was the new hype. But for my first five or six years, Nobody wanted to go near the public stuff. It was all, and so you could, the big boys didn't, didn't touch it. And I thought there was a niche in public golf. And I just started sort of championing that and seeing what was out there. Cause I saw a lot of owners that were doing okay with it and they were individual owners. My theory's always been if, if golf's doing well, you really don't need management companies that much because most, a lot of the management companies there were, were there to say, Hey, I can lose you less money and you'll lose yourself. And that was brought on by, by a big builder that had a thousand acre subdivision, want somebody to run the golf while he sold the houses. And that's, and so 
I just said, Hey, my focus is going to be public. Uh, I'm going to try to make it where they can make money at it, or if not make money, at least not lose money. And, um, so we went at it that way. And it's, it's sort of like a, a guy that owns McDonald's versus a guy that has, uh, um, Peter Luger's in New York. Um, everybody's heard of Peter Luger's or whatever, and they want to go there and spend all the money. But, but the guys, guys at the McDonald's are doing okay. Mm-hmm. So, um, you're both in the restaurant business and the, the golf in, in this country is, is public. I mean, there's 12,000 golf courses. I had a guy tell me the other day, we're down to, we've got 28,000 golf pros and less than 6,000 of our golf courses now have a class A head pro, you know, because the way it's changed, you got a lot of resorts that might have 10 of them, but the, the whole industry, people are saying, Hey, I don't need this, this, and this, I can run it. So golf pros are having to change and it's, it's the business business is just getting more, more and more efficient. And, um, it's, uh, you're never going to hear about public golf. You're going to hear about, you're going to hear about Bandon and I don't have a problem with that. You're going to hear about, uh, whatever a new course is being built on the right kind of land, but not many people even get to play those courses when you weigh it all out. I mean, those of us that are fortunate enough to play them, see it, but so many other guys just go from public course to public course. Yeah. I mean, that's the way 98% of the golf world, or maybe not 98, but 90% of the golf world interacts with golf. Everybody always loves to look at the 25 million golfer statistic in America, and they fail to recognize that, you know, 20 of 20, at least 20 million of those people are just I go play public golf course around me. Like that's the way almost all my buddies are that have just recently gotten to the game in their early thirties. They just go play public golf course to public golf course. They don't play the same public golf course every week. They go, sure. you know, it's just like, Oh, I I'm going here this week. They invite me all the time. And I'm like, I don't play golf on Saturday mornings. You know, I'm in the golf sure. business, but like, it's like, they go here, they go here. They go here. And, and it's just, and I ask them about like, why do you choose that? And they're like, well, you know, I wanted to go see this place and they had a good deal on golf. Now, how did, how is golf now being someone that was in the bit in, in the go- owning golf and operating golf before and after what has that done? I think it's the worst thing ever happened to public golf. And, and that's my opinion. Um, they did a couple of years ago, they did $59 million in revenue. And Golf Channel lost six or seven million, owned by the same company, and and all they've done is take the average public golfer and make him a commodity. He has no loyalty to you uh, or anything else. He looks for the deal, and their system is based on barter, where they're not out there to make money on you selling around off their software. They're out there to take. If you know how it works, they get two tee times, sometimes three tee times a day. Mm-hmm. That's twelve players at three. And if they sell that at 20 bucks while you're trying to sell it at 60, you know, they've made $240 a day off of you. And you'll see people, I was on it for six months and you'd see the same people come in and buy that time. If they couldn't get that time, they would go to another course where they could get the deal, but they were not going to pay your full green fee. 
So I stopped and it helped me. And I think more and more people are changing now. I think the, eventually somebody will figure out another T sheet that works. Cause it's, have you, have you ever thought about doing like a punch card? I know it sounds stupid, but you know, like in, in a way it's, it's kind of like, Oh, I got the fields punch card. I get a, I get a free round or a free card every five rounds or something, something like we do something like we, we sell a card where they, they, they get 25%, uh, they can buy uh, $500 worth of golf for 400 bucks, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And and then they just, uh, it doesn't punch anymore. It works off the point of sale, but we do a lot of those different things like that. I think there's value in the punch card. I, I think, think there probably would be just, just I having think... the physical card would be added marketing. You know? Well, why not? It's, it's something to try. <laughs> it's like I mean, it's something people carry around. I got stuff in my wallet from all over the place. It's like you never know when you pull it out and you're like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. And then you, you realize how many people, just like you just said, you, they forget about it. So you might make more money with that than you do, you know, because they don't. They throw it away or lose it or, or whatnot. But it's 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 a. Uh, Y'all are just going to view that differently. It's it's y'all just view the entire the entire thing is different. And if you're, I, I've asked guys if, if I'm a Titleist salesman, uh, I might want to call on the bigger clubs in Atlanta because Titleist is geared toward that. But if I'm the Bridgestone salesman, I might want as many of those public courses as I can get. Same with golf carts. I mean, golf cart people don't make their money. Uh, selling just to the privates because there's not enough of them. Mm-hmm. They got to sell to everybody, and it's 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 uh, you can't you can't come in and sell an irrigation system to a guy that's doing six or seven hundred thousand dollars a year. You can't come in and sell him a two million dollar irrigation system. So you got to stop it. You got to figure out how do I get this guy to where he survives or does he just have to shut down when everything quits working? And, and that's, it's, it's the gorilla golf or whatever. There's, there's, there's guys out there. There's a, a course will shut down over here and at $150,000 pump station, somebody might pick it up for $5,000 and he's sitting down there in Florida and he's also picking up the heads every time they change heads on a, resort course in Phoenix every four or five years. And he's cleaning those heads up and little Johnny public. He knows to call him and I called in there and buy irrigation head for 20 bucks a piece and buy a pump station for this. That market is huge. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's like when a golf course closes, like, you know, go get their green grass, you know, but, see if you can go scalp the greens. You can do that. You can go, but look at the guys that go cut that did dig the heads up. Mm-hmm. A guy digs all the heads up, the, uh, uh, takes the pump station. It's, 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 uh, you know, and, and, and doing, you see that all over. And, and a lot of the renovation stuff, we try not to do that much renovation restoration, but um, a lot of it you you end up doing that way because they don't even know they don't even know that's available. Mm-hmm. I'm curious if you were going back if you were Mike Young and uh, you were 16 year old Eagle Scout now how 
Would you? <laughs> would you? How would you get into the into the golf architecture business if you were redoing it? Would you do it the same way, or how would you go about it? Uh, I don't know that I would. I mean, I I I, I think that it's it's uh, all these all these kids that come to you, good kids, smart kids, that want to do it. And I, I mean, I can we all know a lot of them sharp kids that could go into business doing something else. And, and they, they consider it a glamor job. It's not a glamor job. I mean, for the average golf architect, you're building stuff like I build. It's, it's there's five or six guys that get the glamor and, and that's a brutal business. It's just not that you don't know. You don't know where the next one's coming from. And, and that's, that's, we'll get out of here, but the, that's why I started trying to figure out how to buy golf courses or whatnot, because I don't think if you go back and look, I don't think any golf architect in the past was really what you'd consider full-time. I mean, there's always been the old guys, they were either golf pros or doing something else that, that, at, that subsidized their golf design. They would do it when it was there. And that's sort of what I like to do is try to mix it in there where you're like a holistic golf company. We, we can, we can do it all. We can operate it. We can buy it. We can build it. We can design it. But if you're not doing that, then you're going to be sitting there where you, your wife better have a good job or something because there's going to be times when there's just nothing to do. And I just, it's, it's a business that's, it's a craft. It's not a, it's not a profession. It's a craft. You got to have lots of side hustles. You know, you got to be a hustler. Is yeah, basically, you got to be a hustler. But in a way, what you've done is like, you, you know, you, a lot of, I think a lot of people that build golf courses are, don't know what they're doing. You know, like the say, I want to build a golf course is they, it's not like they made their money building golf courses. So having somebody that, you know, like you, you've got a nice perspective where you operate them, you've built them, you've sold turf grass equipment into them you you know you maintained a golf course with with ashley and other golf courses that you maintain like you you actually can be more of like a consultant on top of designing yeah. a golf course we can take them i mean we've done turnkeys we've done it where we've built clubhouse we've done everything all the way through mm-hmm. yeah, that's and there's there's other guys that do that mike uh we we're gonna get you out of here um we're, thank you for coming on. We'll may do more topics like this. I think uh, obviously unique expertise in, beyond just the golf course architecture standpoint, and in being somebody that owns and operates and and you know has a wonderful place. I I recommend the fields to everybody. I think it's one of the most uh, best hidden gems in in America. You know, there's. It gets uh it doesn't get nearly the traffic that it deserves. So, you know, it's only an hour fifteen from, from Atlanta. I my buddy and I my buddy who I went out there with and I still talk about it, you know. It's uh we went on a gray winter day. It was not, you know, a pleasant day to play golf, but both of us being northerners, we we had just the the best time out there playing a match and it it is so so neat. So I, I love that place. I can't wait till I get back down there. We'll come back down. Yeah. Stop by next time. We'll talk about Johnson city. Yeah. That's, come I over mean, there and see that while we're doing it's, it. It's my golf course. You know? There you go. Johnson yeah. city. That's it. That's it. <laughs> yeah. All right. I'll tell a little boy. We talked about it. <laughs> All right.
I'll see you.